Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and it's time for the News Roundup. And boy, do we have a lot of questions. What's the big takeaway from this week's split-screen moment at the border? And what does it tell us about the competing visions of power that are at stake in the November elections? Also, the longest-serving Senate leader is stepping down. What will be Mitch McConnell's legacy? And once more, Congress kicks the can down the road for funding the government. It's deja vu all over again. With us this week, Steve Clemens is the founding editor-at-large of Semaphore and host of The Bottom Line at Al Jazeera English. Steve, great to have you here in the studio. Great to be with you. From the Associated Press, White House reporter Sung Min Kim, great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me. And Jordan Fabian, White House correspondent for Bloomberg. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks. Glad to be back. We're going to start with an exit. Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announced Wednesday that he is stepping down from party leadership at the end of the year, though he says he will serve out his Senate term through 2026. McConnell is the longest serving Senate leader in history, and he knows what it takes to stay in power. But he didn't shy away from offering a hint of why he may be leaving now, given the current direction in his party. Believe me. I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. McConnell went on to reference the importance of America's global leadership, hinting at his support for Ukraine aid, which is not a popular position among Republicans in Congress or with the presumed GOP nominee Donald Trump. And he warned that we might be slipping away from the values that underpinned Ronald Reagan's famous vision of America as a shining city on a hill, a beacon of democracy for the rest of the world. So, Steve, what could McConnell's departure from leadership mean for the GOP? It has staggering implications because, on one hand, Mitch McConnell within the GOP caucus is also not popular with some for recognizing Joe Biden's win in the last election. Uh, Also, uh, calling Donald Trump morally responsible for what happened on January 6th. I do want to remind voters that he is the person that, when Barack Obama was president, kept the Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland from ever getting a hearing because a lot of people are throwing laurels out uh, on behalf of, of Mitch McConnell. But he's been one of the people to manipulate and really change, you know, dyed in the wool rules uh, and norms of the way this government worked. And he began opening the doors to a lot of changes, which I think President Trump has taken much further in the eyes of, of many. But what you have now is. What McConnell says he knows which party is, is Donald Trump's party. And so when you look at that, if you were to replay the, the certification process in your mind about what that would look like today or in the next uh, Senate, it may play out very differently where you actually have uh, suspension of normal rules in order of how you get transfer of power uh, in, in this government, how you look at certain uh, issues like Ukraine aid or America's position in the world. And what we may be seeing is you know, an ongoing incremental move towards a real inflection point about America's place in the world. I don't know if he will succeed, but he is making the punctuation point of his departure 
the national security supplemental that has in it support for Ukraine, also uh, Israel and the Israel-Gaza crisis, but also Taiwan. But he's making this moment the thing that he's bartering and negotiating over. Well, you make the point that it might be unsustainable for him to stay in leadership with Donald Trump at the helm of the party, given that he did not um, certify um, last time, or he certified he Joe Biden's certify, election yeah. rather right. than certifying Donald Trump's version of events. Sungmin, who might replace McConnell at the top of his party in the Senate? So there's a high likelihood that the person who would replace Mitch McConnell as the Republican leader, that his first name is John. <laughs> we, there's been a joke for a while, but now that now that's in full uh, in full display with McConnell's announcement earlier this week, there have been three Republican senators, um, you know, John Barrasso of Wyoming, John Thune of South Dakota, and John Cornyn of Texas, who had all been kind of whispered about as potential successors to McConnell because they've been in leadership or are currently in leadership or have various uh, constituencies within their conference. Um, so if you talk to senators, if you talk to aides, it's really hard to handicap who has the lead right now. It's These races are hard to handicap anyway because this isn't like other elections. It certainly is not like the speaker's race. Uh, Senate is a much smaller, uh, clubbier atmosphere than the House. This really can come down to just pure personal relationships, what someone may have done for another senator years ago or what they might have done to spite another senator years ago. Um, but of the three, um, John Cornyn, the uh, Republican from Texas, he is the only one who's officially declared that he's in the running to succeed McConnell. He was the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee two, two times, is a prolific fundraiser for the party, was the second-ranking Senate Republican until he was term-limited out. But uh, John Thune, who's the current second-ranking Senate Republican, and John Barrasso, who's the third-ranking Senate Republican, will also uh, have make decisions to make and probably mm -hmm. will move quickly if they want to uh, gain some momentum that Cornyn's getting right now. Steve, did you want to jump in with well, I something? I want to jump in because Donald Trump is saying no to all three Johns mm -hmm. and to make a, you know, play for the name Steve, you know, I happen to, to share that name. <laughs> you know, Steve Daines of uh, Montana is, is who uh, Donald Trump is saying that's who he wants uh, to succeed Mitch McConnell. We'll see how that plays out. And I largely agree with what's young men laid out. And John Barrasso has been moving to the right. John Thune and John Corner are both sort of on the fringes of Trump land, somewhat not as supportive of Trump as they see. And Steve Daines has cut a very close relationship with Trump. So Donald Trump has rolled a bowling ball into conventional wisdom and into the three Johns. And we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, yeah, I like that analogy. Jordan, as a Steve, um, you know, indicated to us before, uh, Mitch McConnell is sometimes credited with reshaping the judiciary, including the Supreme Court. Talk to us a bit about the legacy that he leaves our justice system. One thing on both sides of the aisle in Washington everyone will agree on is that Mitch McConnell was very effective at wielding power. Uh, the judiciary is going to be wanting his crowning achievements. Uh, he, as Steve mentioned, uh, blocked Merrick Garland from being considered uh, under the, in the last year of uh, Barack Obama's presidency. Uh, he, he got three justices on the bench for Donald Trump, including uh, barreling through uh, Brett Mc, uh, Mc, uh, Kavanaugh through those sexual assault allegations. And so it's interesting to see the, uh, some of the Trump-allied Republicans then turning on uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, some, some of his supporters have pointed out that he got a lot done for Donald Trump, and now uh, they're turning on him over Ukraine and other matters. 
And, and, and on the left, I mean, he's he's a, a sure a lightning rod for all the things I just mentioned. Also, the Citizens United uh, push that he made earlier in his career to take down limits on campaign uh, finance. It's, that's why you see the, the billions and billions of dollars pouring into elections now through super PACs and other committees. But in recent years, you know, some opinions have softened, especially under Biden's presidency. He helped, you know, get some uh, things through the finish line for Joe Biden, including a bipartisan gun package, including uh, the CHIPS uh, bill, which is going to inject billions of dollars into domestic semiconductor manufacturing. And he was also seen as the finger on the dam of Trumpism uh, within the Republican Party and really you know, helped uh, shepherd through Ukraine aid, helped keep some of those more isolationist forces in the Republican Party at bay. And, and so that's why you saw you know, President Biden, someone who's been on opposite sides of the debate for Mitch McConnell for decades, you praise him on the way out uh, earlier this week. Well, we'll see whether he is able to do more for Ukraine aid, because that is still hanging in the balance. Elsewhere in Congress, Hunter Biden testified Wednesday before a House GOP committee that is pursuing an impeachment inquiry against his father. Republicans have been trying to prove that the younger Biden's foreign business dealings benefited then-Vice President Joe Biden. Steve, what did we learn about Hunter Biden's closed-door test? Well, we know that he said that President Biden, um, then Vice President Biden or Senator Biden, had nothing to do with any of his uh, businesses uh, when he was a lawyer, you know, when he, and, and, and took it all the way to the period of being an artist, which has also been a controversial part of Hunter Biden's profile of, you know, getting up to half a million dollars for some of the art and people wondering, oh, there must be some sort of uh, untoward relationship there. But he said very strongly that is not the case. I think the more interesting dimension of it is that uh, the, the, the chair of the committee, uh, Chairman Comer, continues to see possibility of bringing that that testimony, or not that particular testimony, because we'll get the readout of eventually, but bringing Hunter Biden into a public forum, was many Democrats of the, in the committee, Eric Swalwell and others, sort of saw this as the nail in the coffin on the Hunter Biden uh, hunt, if they will, you know, to try to link President Biden to nefarious activities and corruption, if you will, uh, in that. So we we see the big piece of, of, of evidence here was that it, a a a long-term FBI informant who ended up having, now we know, uh, relations with Russian national intelligence officials brought to uh, the FBI and others nefarious information about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden that we now know not to be true. Uh, and he is arrested uh, and being pursued for other reasons. And that collapse of that that witness everyone thought would end this process, and it doesn't look like it has ended yet. Mm-hmm. So while while Hunter Biden has made the claim that his father was uninvolved and the Republican star witness is now known to be a li- liar and is now in prison for other, you know, in jail for other reasons, um, Jim Comer just seems to be barreling ahead anyway. So, Sungmin, what is the likely next step in this Republican-led impeachment inquiry into President Biden? As Steve said, the main so-called whistleblower is actually a liar who's now in prison. The actual next step could certainly be a public hearing in the Oversight Committee with Hunter Biden. That is something that Hunter Biden and his attorneys had called for in recent months. But looking down the road, it's a real question as to whether the impeachment of President Biden himself actually gets to a floor vote. There are dozens of House Republicans who are very concerned about pursuing this, uh, especially with the lack of evidence that uh, House committee leaders have found. So we'll just have to wait and see. All right. We're going to head to a quick break. Coming up, more drama this week from a courtroom in Georgia and a split-screen moment at the U.S.-Mexico border. We'll be back with more of the Roundup in just a moment.
Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day, all in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. All right, let's listen now to something that might sound familiar. Today, I am taking the first procedural step for the Senate to move forward on a legislative vehicle we can use next week to pass a temporary extension to avoid a government shutdown. Mr. President, over the weekend, congressional leadership reached a bipartisan agreement on a clean extension of government funding until March 1st and March 8th, which will prevent a government shutdown. So we have been here before, and it wasn't that long ago. That was Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer back in November of last year, and then again in January. Now, on Thursday night, the House of Representatives voted 320 to 99 to approve another short-term deal to fund the government. The Senate went on later Thursday to approve the third continuing resolution in four months. Jordan, funding the government is one of the most basic, perhaps the most important function of Congress. They have one main job to do. So why can't they get a long-term deal done? Well, it's turned into one of the most controversial things in Congress, and that's thanks to uh, far-right Republicans in the uh, House Republican Conference. Uh, They have pressured first Speaker Kevin McCarthy, now Speaker Mike Johnson, to to include a number of concessions uh, in these spending packages that are, of course, not palatable Democrats uh, who control the Senate and the presidency. Uh, This time around, they're pressing for what are called policy riders in these spending bills on a range of issues from abortion access to immigration to climate policy. Uh, And look, leadership knows that these things aren't going to become law under uh, divided government. And and so they've resisted them. But the the threat that Speaker Johnson is facing is the same threat that uh, Kevin McCarthy succumbed to, which is that a small number of these uh, uh, conservative House Republicans can uh, call a vote to vacate the chair, get rid of the Speaker of the House. It only takes three members to do that in the House. And so uh, Mike Johnson has kind of been governing in fear uh, as a result. And so that's why you have the stalemate on government funding that's lasted uh, you know, for, for months now. I, I believe the government's still operating under the same uh, budget that you know, the Democratic trifecta uh, negotiated in 2022 before the midterm elections because of this paralysis. Well, sadly, we will be talking about this on many future shows to come since it is not yet resolved. Let's turn now to the Supreme Court. The justices heard oral arguments on Wednesday about a federal ban on bump stocks, which are attachments that allow semi-automatic rifles to fire at speeds rivaling machine guns. The Trump administration moved to outlaw them in 2017 after a single shooter used bump stocks to fire 1,000 rounds of ammunition in minutes, killing 60 people and injuring hundreds more at a Las Vegas music festival. It's the deadliest mass shooting in modern history. 
Um, Steve, how did these arguments for and against banning bump stocks play out before the court this week? Well, it was really interesting because you saw and heard both liberal and conservative uh, justices on the court trying to understand technically uh, the differences between machine guns and guns that have been amended with these bump stocks and what the rationale is for why – when you turn a you know a, a, a you know some other firing mechanism into something that's like a machine gun, whether it's a machine gun or not, and you heard sympathy on both um, sides of the court essentially with the notion that these were awful weapons. But what you also began to hear develop in the court was something interesting: is that uh, Neil Gorsuch and others and and Kavanaugh were worried about the hundreds of thousands of Americans who have bought these bump stocks legally. Uh, and what sort of quagmire they would be in, which is a very different kind of, you know, court rationale, which uh, is is rare for those that have kind of watched these decisions. You know, I, I'm kind of sort of sitting there saying, so what? You know, you figure out how to resolve it. But on on their side, the two sides is one, whether or not that I don't think there's any doubt that they don't want to see these weapons necessarily out there or promulgated. At the same time, there's a concern about what do you do with with people who've already bought these systems. I should also say that right now that we are missing to some degree the normal cavalcade of responses from the National Rifle Association and others that would like to see this law undone. Mm -hmm. And the chaos at the top of the NRA, uh, the, the, the court uh, findings against, you know, finding Wayne LaPierre and others responsible for, you know, civilly responsible mm -hmm. for some of the corruption malfeasance inside the National Rifle Association has somewhat neutralized the NRA in this moment. So you don't have the surround sound around this. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But that's the, essentially the dimensions of the debate in the court. Well, especially considering that this ban was promulgated during the Trump administration, you know, you would think that the Supreme Court would also keep that in mind. Are you? You uh, heard you... that in in mm -hmm. both from both sides of the justice. You heard Sam Alito say, "Isn't this a machine gun?" Essentially, by other uh, other reasons, and you heard that from Justice Alito, who's very conservative. Uh, but you heard slightly different takes on this from Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. But when you sort of look at, I don't know how the case will come out uh, eventually, but you heard a concern about not wanting to rob those people who thought they were behaving legally of those rights and, and, and creating that. We'll have mm -hmm. to see how it goes. Sungmin, on Monday, the Supreme Court tackled laws in Texas and Florida that would force social media companies to carry certain speech on their platforms. Explain to us what this argument was about. Right. So this was a case before the Supreme Court on Monday, just like you said, about these Republican-led laws in Florida and Texas. And those laws are really meant to restrict the power of these big social media content companies to basically halt content that they themselves are, feel that they're objectionable. And obviously, this was a very lively debate. Um, there are several justices who were concerned that these such laws could undermine kind of these free speech issues. But, uh, but, but, but there were certainly a lot of uh, ideas being discussed. And really at issue, at the core of this issue here, are whether these laws coming from states such as Florida and Texas, which a lot of times have been born of these Republican concerns about alleged bias against conservatives, violate such free speech rights and that and that argument that 
you know, that these, you know, that that the Twitter, well, I guess it's not Twitter anymore, it's X, but the Facebooks and the Instagrams and all these big social media companies that have such a, you know, profound impact on our everyday lives. This is how people communicate. This is how people get certain news. This is how people consume their news. Um, that, you know, you're hearing more and more Republicans, you know, certainly in Washington and in other states say these are biased and against conservatives. It's be really becoming a rallying cry. So this is a Supreme Court case that looks at that and certainly a fascinating one. Hmm. Well, Jordan, both sides say that this is about freedom of speech and censorship. But is social media more like a newspaper or is it more like a telephone? Because we heard in the arguments that that affects how the justices would rule. That's right. And that's the central question that the high court is trying to resolve here. Uh, are, are these companies like a common carrier where you know, they're required uh, to transmit messages across their airwaves, across their you know, social media feeds? Or are they like a newspaper that has discretion of what, what they can and, and cannot publish? And, and so uh, whether the justices decide that sweeping question now or they uh, have a more limited ruling that would allow uh, this case to continue uh, through the lower courts, we'll have to see. It seemed like some of the justices were uh, more inclined to uh, sort of enact a more limited ruling and, and, and you know, sort of let, the, let this play out. But there's certainly across the ideological spectrum, there was concern with how these laws would uh, possibly infringe on the First Amendment rights of Americans if, uh, you know, if they were allowed to stay in place. Hmm. All right. Well, we will be keeping an eye on that um, to watch how the justices rule. So stay tuned. That'll be on our future shows. Now, from cases heard to cases soon to be heard, the justices have set a date to hear arguments about whether President Trump is immune from prosecution for his role in trying to overturn the 2020 election. Oral arguments are set for April 22nd. Steve, how significant is the Supreme Court's timing here on when a trial might happen and how soon should we expect a decision? from the court? Well, many analysts say that this decision basically probably uh, uh, creates a certainty that Donald Trump will not be held accountable uh, for his actions on January 6th because you now set into place a process at certain times. This is just about the immunity side. This isn't defined. This freezes the current court case uh, and the proceedings against Trump regarding his role on January 6th. And so if you were to find a decision that he is in fact where the, where the court decision is upheld that he is in fact not immune for his actions, then that trial would continue and you would get to something where in the best of circumstances, you'll have a decision that comes out in that court case um, mid-October, right before the election. And in that case, that's if everything goes well uh, for the prosecution and the special prosecutor in this case, which we know in reality that isn't likely to happen. So, uh, so there's a fascinating situation here where if Donald Trump were to be found guilty in that, but also to be elected president of the United States in the next election, then it raises the question, can he just simply uh, uh, basically find himself immune and and pardon himself for whatever actions? And that raises another interesting court case. If he loses that race, then, then this would still continue and perhaps be relevant. But it throws off the entire thing. I think the special counsel, Jack Smith, was trying very hard to have this done early so it would not affect the election. But others have saying that in itself is a political act and they've been critical of Smith. So we, we, it, we're not going to see the outcome of this case. Sungmin, you know, I, I got to ask you, Trump has been trying to delay this trial until after the election for all the reasons that Steve just laid out for us. 
is this a win for him? And what implications could this have um, for other cases that Trump is facing? Well, I think anytime you can delay any court proceeding and, and the strategy that Donald Trump is taking is certainly could be a win for him. Because remember, he is juggling multiple criminal cases. This isn't the the immunity argument pertains to the the federal case in the District of Columbia that that deals with the 2020 election, a subversion case. However, he has multiple other cases going on. Obviously, the one uh, trial, one criminal trial that we know for now is supposed to start fairly soon is is in the hush money payments case, which starts in New York on March 25th. But he's also dealing with a separate federal case, dealing with his uh, mishandling and holding of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. The case was supposed to, the or the, sorry, excuse me, the trial was supposed to start May 20th, but no one thinks it's going to start May 20th. And there's actually a hearing in Florida today to delay that further, to see how far in the summer that um, that case should go. Jack Smith is asking for some time in July. Obviously, Trump's lawyers are asking for after the November election in that case as well. But just in case, as an insurance policy, they're saying, well, if you can't do after the November election, we'll take it in August as well. And some analysts believe that his lawyers are intentionally doing that to try to delay the proceedings for his other Jack Smith case, the other federal case, which is the uh, the election the election case. So basically, this all comes down to what has been a strategy for Donald Trump when it comes to his legal cases, which is delay, 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 pass the November election, and then and wait for the outcome here. Um, and he's so far, with all the appeals that he's been making and with all the pre-trial proceedings that have been going on, he's been fairly successful at that. Wow. Well, the head reels at all the cases we're talking about here. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Trump and his co-defendants are seeking to have Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis removed from the election interference case. They claim that she had an inappropriate relationship with the lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade. On Tuesday, Nathan Wade's former divorce lawyer, Terrence Bradley, testified about Wade's relationship with Fonnie Willis. What did Nathan Wade tell you about the relationship? I recall him stating that at some point they were dating. Uh, I can't tell you what date that was. It was made in confidence. All right. That was Nathan Wade's former lawyer, Terrence Bradley, testifying in an Atlanta courtroom on Tuesday. Jordan Bradley was questioned about text messages that he sent saying Wade and Willis became romantically involved before Willis hired him. Bradley said he didn't know when the relationship began. I know this sounds like soap opera high drama, um, (laughs) you know, from the CW channel or something, but why is this timeline so important? That's right. Uh, it's it's all a bit salacious, but it does speak to the question of whether there was a conflict of interest between Fannie Willis, the prosecuting attorney in the Georgia case, and Nathan Wade, who she brought on as a special counsel, uh, paid a lot of money to uh, you know act as as a special counsel in that case. The Trump's lawyers, uh, Trump's uh, one of the defendants, is trying to get them disqualified. And, and to Sun Ming's point, this would further you know, delay this trial. They'd have to find a new prosecutor. So this is really a key maneuver here uh, for the Trump allies. And uh, look, the, the fact that he couldn't remember a lot of these details, you know, that would suggest that uh, you, that could undercut this effort to you know, disqualify Fannie Willis from being the prosecutor. Uh, but, but also at the same time, he contradicted those, those text messages he sent to, um, to members of Trump's defense team about when the, the Fannie Way nathan Willis 
relationship began. So, you know, does the judge say, well, he couldn't substantiate the claims, uh, therefore we're going to keep her on, or, you know, he's an unreliable witness. I, I think this is all un, untoward and we're getting rid of Fonnie, getting rid of Fonnie Willis. That's a tough question that he's going to have to mm-hmm. decide. And we have the closing arguments happening today. Well, we have even more drama from Georgia, which is that the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, said that Willis's prosecution against Trump in his Georgia election interference case is looking, quote, more political. But then he immediately said he needed to be careful about what he said because he had been subpoenaed by Willis. So Steve, fill us in, remind listeners why Kemp is significant and why does what he says matter? Well, Governor Kemp has not been a big fan of President Trump in this process, number one. Number two, uh, he has been from the very beginning of this, someone saying, hey, we need to play it straight up, play it straight by the game, and that everyone looks at this case, where it's going, and the various actors we're seeing in what Jordan just called the soap opera, depending on how they want to see the outcome of this. Uh, right now, we're all talking about Fannie Willis. We're not talking about Donald Trump's effort to undermine the election and to influence the Georgia Secretary of State. And that was one of President Trump's goals in this process. And I think that's what Governor Brian Kemp is referring to. We're going to head to a quick break. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Sungmin, on Wednesday, an appeals court judge denied former President Trump's request to pause enforcement of a $450 million payment that he owes in New York. In a court filing, the former president says he doesn't have the money to pay up. So tell us, why did the judge deny Trump's request? And what happens if Trump really doesn't have the money to pay nearly half a billion dollars that he owes? That's actually a really good question because that is a lot of money, even even for someone who is self-proclaimed as wealthy as Donald Trump Trump says he is. And there's actually a very good New York Times article laying this out. It seems like the likeliest option is that Donald Trump could ask a company to post a bond on his behalf, which is basically an IOU. Uh, They would put up a certain small percentage. I believe that's 3% of the overall amount. That basically prevent, that action basically prevents 
the New York Attorney General's office from collecting that money while his inevitable appeals process is ongoing. Um, But, you know, if he doesn't pony up that money, post a bond, or for whatever reason, while all that's going on, the appeals process, uh, his appeals are denied in in, in, in protesting that collection, that $450 million collection, the Attorney General's office could then move to seize certain assets that he has. And those assets include things like Trump Tower, things that are so um, central to his identity as a businessman, someone who knows the economy, someone who knows how to who knows how to do business and bring wealth back. And that would certainly, I mean, of of all the remarkable developments that we talk about when it comes to Donald Trump, that would certainly be quite the quite hmm. the, quite the development there. Well, we could spend the entire hour talking about Trump's legal cases, but we won't do that this time. So let's travel over to the U.S.-Mexico border where President Biden and Donald Trump both visited the border on Thursday and delivered starkly different messages in what made for quite a striking split screen image. Trump spoke about his border security priorities from Eagle Pass, Texas, while Biden met border agents in Brownsville. Instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? That was President Joe Biden sending a very strong message to his rival for the presidency. The border may be the hottest of all the hot-button issues right now in domestic politics. It's a rallying point for Republicans who are seen as tougher on illegal immigration or certainly portray themselves that way. Steve, tell us why President Biden is leaning into this issue now and what is his calculation here? Well, I think he's leaning into it because you have a lot of uh, Americans on both sides of the aisle that are frustrated with what they see, particularly in cities, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, New York, um, major Democratic leaders saying, please help us do something. We're being overrun with um, migrants that we can't manage. And it also creates a real challenge for the way Billy, American ethic about how we look at asylum and the legality and importance of asylum and helping those abroad, but how the volume of asylum cases is simply overrun and jammed uh, the federal judicial system and concerns about the vulnerability of that. You've played what Joe Biden said in outreaching to Donald Trump. What Donald Trump said is the United States is being overrun by the Biden, Biden migrant crime. And so he is tagging Joe Biden with all of the issues. And occasionally we've had a case, recently a case, where a, a migrant had come in, an, uh, an immigrant who had come in and, and killed uh, a young woman. And so he's using these cases to basically weaponize this issue in this, in this political race. Sungmin, you were with the president at the border on Thursday. Tell us what happened. So th- the, this White House uh, event was very much choreographed to make President Biden's case that it is more resources that are needed to help these people on the ground who are dealing with a number of migrants who are arriving at the Mexico border, and that there was a solution, a legislative solution, and Republicans blocked it. So what we did when we traveled uh, with the president yesterday is we first went to right down to the border. We were in a little, um, you know, little area off a dusty, gravelly road 
right next to the Rio Grande. You know, Mexico was not too far away from us. And he was briefed by senior officials from Border Patrol about what they are doing on the ground there, what they have been doing in Brownsville that has made the numbers of uh, migrants go relatively or go down relative to other sectors along the U.S.-Mexico border. Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, said that was due in part to increased cooperation from Mexico, which really underscores the administration's argument that this is a regional issue. It is not just being tough on the border by the president of the United States, but you need cooperation from other countries in the region um, to make this problem, to make this to make this issue, uh, to ease this to ease this issue. And then he met firsthand with various uh, officials from various immigration agencies, whether it's Citizens and Immigration Services, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, and they told him various things, but they told the one kind of through line there is that we just need resources. We need money. We need personnel. We need bodies. We need, we need, we need everything here. And that's when President Biden really took the opportunity to say congressional Republicans at the behest of Donald Trump killed this, killed this solution, killed this bill that would have provided all of those things. Hmm. Now, they're hoping to make that argument resonate uh, in the coming months, particularly as immigration remains a vulnerability for President Biden and Democrats. I'm never sure how process arguments stick with voters outside of Washington, but it's certainly something that they're going to try um, in, a, in the next several weeks and months. Okay. Well, according to Gallup's February polling, 28% of Americans now say that immigration is the most most important issue facing the country. That is up from 20% in January and dramatically up from just 8% last June. Jordan, Trump talks about so-called migrant crime, as Steve Clemens was telling us. There's an assumption that immigrants drive up crime rates. But aside from the anecdote that Steve gave us, FBI uniform crime statistics indicate that that's not actually true, that native-born Americans are convicted of crimes at a much higher rate than immigrants. So how much do the facts matter here, or is it more about fear? You know, unfortunately, Indira, I, I think it's the latter. Uh, you, know, you Democrats have, for a long time have uh, tried to tout these studies showing that you know, crime rates among immigrant groups are less than native-born populations, that you know most people are coming to the United States for a better life, for, for a better opportunity. Uh, but Republicans have proven themselves very adept at, at seizing on these instances uh, where immigrants you know, commit violent crimes and you know, broadcasting them across social channels, Fox News, et cetera. The latest example is Lake and Riley, uh, the, the Georgia uh, student who was uh, sadly killed, allegedly by uh, someone who is not in the country uh, legally from uh, Venezuela. So I, you would expect to continue to see uh, those kinds of efforts pushed by Donald Trump and his allies uh, as the election gets closer. All right. Well, let's travel from Texas to Michigan. On Tuesday, Joe Biden and Donald Trump easily won their party's primaries, but a closer look at the results should give both cause for concern. We're asking you, President Biden, to stop killing our families before you come and ask for our support. If he doesn't get it together and change what he's doing, we will not vote for him in November. I'm so proud of the results because they're far greater than anticipated. And if states like Colorado and Michigan and Minnesota want to start winning again, you have to have somebody on the ticket that can win a general election. 
That was Nikki Haley and Donald Trump talking about the GOP vote in Michigan. Before them, two local Arab Americans who were part of a substantial protest vote that have could have big consequences in November. Steve, a lot of attention has been paid to the number of Democrats who voted uncommitted in Michigan. What are your takeaways from the results there? They, this uncommitted group um, is reportedly very frustrated with President Biden's support of Israel and the Israel-Gaza crisis that's unfolding and his lack of, you know, I guess, muscularity, if you will, in, uh, you know, compelling Israel Prime Minister Netanyahu to a ceasefire in the Palestine-Gaza crisis. And so when you look at that situation, it is driving doubt. Other issues of doubt out there, too. I, there's something generationally going on in both parties where, where one, college-educated GOPers seem to be going to Nikki Haley, not Donald Trump. And a lot of college youth in the Democratic Party are expressing ambivalence about the Biden-Kamala Harris ticket. They don't share the same worldview. They don't look at the equities that the United States has abroad in the same way. And I think it's one of the you know vulnerabilities that Biden has going into this. What's interesting is Nikki Haley uh, probably gave you know the the best quote in this, saying you know Joe Biden is losing about twenty percent of Democratic votes. Trump is losing about thirty five percent. We don't know where they go. There's no Joe Manchin or Larry Hogan or others out there in a in a in a genuine third party. Uh, uh, effort right now. But there's a lot of disaffected Americans that do not like either of the candidates right now. And that's what we saw in Michigan. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, Sung Min, what concerns should President Biden have in an election year that members of his own party are being more openly critical of Israel's conduct of the war in Gaza and implicitly critical of his hesitation to do so? Right. I mean, that is so much of the of the that is fueling so much of the intraparty anger against the president right now, which is his administration's handling of the war in Gaza. And if you're looking at the uncommitted vote, if you talk to campaign officials, they'll try to downplay the uncommitted result. They're, they say that oh, it's actually only 13 percent of the results. Um, if you the last time there was an organized uncommitted effort back in 2008, it actually got 40 percent of the Democratic primary vote. So this was expected. They don't see this as a huge. They publicly don't. See this as a huge problem just yet. But as the war goes on, and right now there is no, despite the president's work in trying to secure a temporary ceasefire deal to release some hostages, maybe even as early as the next couple of weeks, that, you know, the the end to the overall war is still hard to see. And as and as the images, as the as as the images continue to come out of the region, and as we continue to hear these horrible stories, the anger among Democrats is really starting starting to grow, particularly in Michigan, where there is a large Arab American Muslim population. And because Michigan is going to be so close and so pivotal in a general election, President Biden, in a a radio interview earlier this week, called it it, one of the five states that will determine who wins in November. Mm -hmm. Anything and everything helps and hurts in Michigan for the president for his reelection campaign. And if you're looking at 100,000 people who chose and committed, obviously, some of them will vote for President Biden at the end of the day when it is a binary choice between him and Donald Trump. But some of them won't. Some of them will vote for a third-party candidate. Some will write someone in. A lot of them may just stay at home. Jordan, Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer is being held up as someone who could make a difference to turnout and to who wins in November. Tell us quickly why she's attracting more national attention. 
Well, she's really emerged as a, a rising star in the Democratic Party over the last few years. She, uh, in the last uh, election, presided over big wins in Michigan. It was sort of the antidote to uh, what Ron DeSantis did down in Florida, where Democrats uh, not only uh, won the governorship again, they, they won a trifecta. Uh, they have the control of both state legislatures. Keep in mind, this is a battleground state, so that is a significant achievement. So they're able to do things like put in place safeguards to make sure you know, election results aren't fiddled with. And there are, she's also been a leading voice on the abortion rights issue, which is, is of course, a key priority for Democrats mm-hmm. heading into the November election. All right. Well, the biggest day of this year's primary campaign is approaching. 16 states will vote next week on Super Tuesday. The contest will unfold from Alaska and California to Virginia and Vermont. We will be making time next Wednesday to hear from you, our listeners, with a team on the ground in Birmingham, Alabama. We will dissect the Super Tuesday results and talk about the ongoing arguments in Alabama that have upended IVF treatment in the state. All right. Very quickly from each of you, I'd just love to hear a top line of what you are looking forward to this week. Who or what will you be watching next week that we haven't talked about, Steve? Well, we just talked about Super Tuesday. Everything is Super Tuesday and what drives, what we learn from it and see it. That's what we'll be doing next week. <laughs> All right. Sung Min, what about you? President Biden is giving a State of the Union address next Thursday. And obviously, everyone watches that speech every year. But this one, much more important because it's an election year. Thank you so much for reminding us of that. Jordan, what about you? What's in your notebook? And I'm looking forward to what the president does after the State of the Union. How does he harness that momentum and uh, push his message forward at a time when Democrats are really urging him to get out to the country more, get on the campaign trail? How is he going to travel and push that message? Well, that's a really good question. And again, another one that we'll be looking to talk more about, especially in the aftermath of the Super Tuesday results. That's Bloomberg's Jordan Fabian. Also with us, Semaphore Steve Clemens and from the Associated Press, Sungmin Kim. Thank you all for joining us. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, fans of Curb Your Enthusiasm have been talking about a recent scene featuring the comedian Richard Lewis, who died at home in Los Angeles earlier this week. In this scene, Richard gets into an argument with Larry David about a topic that feels poignant in light of this week's news. I'm leaving you in my will. I'm tweaking it, and you're in it. No, no, no. Don't, don't do that. It's done. You're in. I don't want to be in it. I have money. I don't need it. Give it to someone who needs it. When I die, I want you to know how much I care about you. I'm not going to keep it. I'm going to give it to charity. You're my best friend. You're getting it. No, I'm making a Sherman-esque statement about the will right now. I'm sick of your historical references. If nominated, I will not run. If bequeathed, I will not accept. Well, I'm bequeathing. Well, I'm not accepting. Well, you'll have to accept. Don't give it to me. Don't hurt my feelings. Don't hurt my feelings. Richard Lewis was 76, and a lot of us are going to miss him. Coming up on the global edition of the News Roundup. Under a heavy police presence, thousands of people bade farewell to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny at his funeral on the outskirts of Moscow. And a global first. It's an extraordinary step forward for French women, but it's also an extraordinary step forward for all women across the world. The French Senate votes to enshrine abortion rights in the country's constitution. Stay with us, we've got a lot to get into. (laughs) 
On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to the indicator from Planet Money and NPR. It's time now for the global edition of the News Roundup. Our guides through this hour are Greg Karlstrom in Dubai. He's Middle East correspondent at The Economist, and he's also author of How Long Will Israel Survive the Threat from Within? Welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me. Also with us, Emily Tamkin, reporter and author of the book Bad Jews, a history of American Jewish politics and identities and co-host of the Election Tricycle podcast. Hello, Emily. Hi, thanks for having me. And James Kitfield, he's a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress and author of the book In the Company of Heroes, the Inspiring Stories of Medal of Honor Recipients from America's Longest Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Welcome, James. Good to be with you. So it's been two weeks since the death of Putin critic and Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny in an Arctic penal colony at the age of 47. Russian authorities claim that Navalny died of natural causes after taking a walk, but his family and Western leaders blame the prominent dissident's death on Russian President Vladimir Putin, whose government famously tried to poison Navalny at least once before. His funeral was held today at a church in Moscow. When the hearse arrived at the church, the coffin was taken out of the vehicle as hundreds in the crowd applauded and chanted, Navalny, Navalny. Some also shouted, you weren't afraid, neither are we. Greg, it's striking that Russians were willing to show up for the funeral of the country's most prominent dissident, especially after so many people have been arrested across the country in the last weeks simply for placing flowers at makeshift memorials. Why are they taking the chance now? It was striking, and there's a certain dark symmetry to it to think that Alexei Navalny used to lead these sorts of protests, and he was a rare figure in Putin's Russia who was able to mobilize crowds for uh, pro-democracy or or anti-Putin demonstrations. And now uh, his his final act, if you will, is, is mobilizing one last crowd. And it's an act of real personal courage on the part of the protesters. I mean, I, I don't cover Russia, but I cover plenty of other uh, authoritarian autocratic countries and showing up for a rally like this when there is a risk of mass arrest, there is a risk of police violence. It's an act of courage and it speaks to very deep grievances that exist in the country. And, you know, for every person who came out to this protest, there were probably plenty of others in Russia who weren't willing to take the risk, but, but share uh, his complaints about Putin, about the, the corruption of the Russian government, about Russia's policy in Ukraine, about various other things, and, and uh, supported the aims of this, this demonstration. Speaking of courage, Navalny's widow, Yulia, has said she will take on the mantle of the opposition from her dead husband. And this week, she addressed European lawmakers in Strasbourg at the European Parliament, appealing to them to be more creative in dealing with the threat from Putin. 
You cannot hurt Putin with another resolution or another set of sanctions. That is no different from the previous ones. You cannot defeat him by thinking he is a man of principle who has morals and rules. He is not like that, and Alexei realized that a long time ago. You are not dealing with a uh, you are not dealing with a politician, but with a bloody monster. Emily, Yulia Navalnaya also spoke of the so-called beautiful Russia that she and her husband had dreamed of after President Putin leaves office, but there is no sign of Putin leaving. The Russian leader is set to be reinstalled with a new six-year term in two weeks via elections in which he faces no real opposition. Emily, you've lived in Russia. Help us understand what people there see in their future. I did. I studied abroad at a program that's since been closed by the Russian government. So it, it sort of, it, you know, it speaks to, and this was around the time that, that Navalny was was sort of coming up as a as an opposition leader. So it, it you know, it, it's sad to think of all that's passed between now and then. I, and I think we should be clear when they speak of a beautiful future in Russia, they're t- they're speaking about a country with rule of law. They're speaking of a country in which people don't have to pay bribes with, 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 without corruption, um, in which the wealth of the country hasn't been allegedly stolen by a very few people at the top and, and their circle of friends. Um, and when will we see that? You know, to, to Greg's point, it's not that it's not that it's not as though with Navalny's death, there's no brave people left in Russia. That's not true. There were people who were assembled at the funeral today, but he was the a significant opposition leader. There's other, you know. Vladimir Karamuza is is in jail. There are other political prisoners, and I think, I think, unfortunately, um, we should expect to see more crackdowns in Russia and greater authoritarianism, and yes, greater you know reported corruption um, mm-hmm. before we see the beautiful future described uh, just there. Yesterday, the Financial Times reported on leaked military documents that revealed Russia's doctrine for tactical nuclear weapons use, including the minimum criteria for using those nuclear weapons. James, what are some of the biggest revelations from those 29 Russian military files, which date from 2008 to 2014? Well, the primary one is that the the threshold for Russia's potential use of tactical nuclear weapons is, is quite a bit lower than a lot of people assumed. Uh, and I think that that speaks to what we've seen in Ukraine, which is the conventional forces of Russia were always somewhat suspect in a lot of people's minds, and they've proven that in Ukraine and their failures to take over the country as they tried two years ago. So, uh, and this gets to why, you know, President Biden has been very careful about crossing a red line, and we're having to sort of dust off the sort of doctrine of nuclear use of mutually assured destruction that, you know, ruled during the Cold War, and he sensed, as, as during the Cold War, that the, you, you, NATO does not want to be in a direct conflict with Russian troops. So this week we saw, for instance, the president of France say, you know, perhaps um, we, we will send troops in to help defend Ukraine. And it immediately, you know, it provoked a nuclear sable rattling from Putin. So these things, you know, this is a very real danger, and we're having to sort of get used to the idea again of, of how do you keep red lines in place that don't allow for the use of weapons, because clearly this, this revelation is that they, the threshold in Russia for using them is lower than we thought. Hmm. And James, how has Russia reacted to the leak of these documents? Well, you know, it hasn't, 
it just kind of uh, says there's nothing to see here and moves on. It's the typical Putin uh, mm-hmm. playbook. Um, whenever something is embarrassing or, or revealing that they don't like, uh, it's, it's nothing to see here and move on. Mm-hmm. Now, Greg, it was interesting. These documents also indicated a distrust of China despite strengthened ties between Moscow and Beijing. The Financial Times reported that Russia's eastern military district conducted exercises that imagined a hypothetical attack by Russia – what does this say about whether Moscow actually sees China as a threat? I think there's been a lot of talk over the past two years in official circles in Moscow and Beijing. The the public rhetoric that you hear is that this is an unshakable alliance or partnership between these two countries. And Russia, of course, being now isolated in the West, is very keen to show that it has other friends and, and China remains on its side and China Uh, more or less has gone along with its invasion of Ukraine. But there's always been, uh, I think, a deep element of mistrust in this relationship. And arguably, it's gotten bigger over the past couple of years. Russia becoming more and more economically isolated. That leaves it more and more reliant on China. Uh, And and it's changed the balance of power in their relationship. And Mm -hmm. it's made Russia, in some ways, almost subordinate to Mm -hmm. China. And that's something that that exacerbates the the pre-existing tensions there. Well, you know, the fear of war seems to be everywhere. And in his annual State of the Nation address, Vladimir Putin warned NATO countries that they will risk nuclear war if they send troops to Ukraine. They should eventually understand that we also have weapons, and they know it. I just said it now myself, weapons that can hit targets on their territory. Everything that the West is coming up with now, what they threaten the world with, It can result in a conflict with the use of nuclear weapons and therefore the destruction of civilization. So, Emily, Putin has warned against direct confrontation between NATO and Russia before, particularly at the start of his full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But this latest speech seems like his most explicit threat yet. Why now? Does he see victory in Ukraine within his reach? And he's worried that, you know, the West might mess that up by sending troops in in a desperate measure to save Ukraine? Yeah, I do think that sending troops in from, say, France or from NATO countries that in his mind, this would, and it would be a shift, right? It would be a direct conflict with NATO in a way that thus far, Russia has not, um, has not had to had to face. And I think, you know, to your point about does he see victory within reach, I think that, like everyone else, uh, Putin has access to the news and can see that, you know, Congress is stalled on providing um, further funding for Ukraine, knows that there is an election coming up in November, um, and, and so thinks time is on his side. We should also just very briefly note that time is on his side in part because he's willing to commit tens of thousands of Russian soldiers to die in Ukraine for this. Mm-hmm. Like a meat grinder, it's been referred to. So this week marked more than two years since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And in an address to the nation, a very defiant Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, insisted that his nation will win the war. We have become 730 days closer to victory. Someone is waiting for some sort of fortune teller to give us the end date. But millions of Ukrainians just remember a great quote from our poet Kobzar. Keep fighting you are sure to win. None of us will allow our Ukraine to end. In the future, next to the word Ukraine, the word independent will always stand.
James' very stirring words from Zelensky, but he later acknowledged for the first time since the war began a death toll of 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers. The number can't be verified, and it's lower than what the United States estimates. But how important was that acknowledgement from him? Well, I think it, it gets to the point where, you know, he's trying to um, sort of counteract Russian propaganda, as he refers to it, that says it's been, their, their losses have been roughly double that in, in the range of 60,000. And he wanted to put a marker in the ground saying, that, yes, I know that we've had great losses, but, um, you know, and the, the real sort of uh, genesis, you know, the, the, the nut of that speech was a rallying cry, as you said, for, you know, we're, we're in this fight, we're in, in this fight to win. And uh, as you mentioned, the American uh, estimate of their losses is even higher, something around 70,000. But I, I was struck by how determined, you know, he was kind of Churchillian uh, rallying cry at this two-year mark of the war from, from Zelensky. While in Congress, we had this uncertain trumpet being, being called by, you know, the House Republicans who are basically abandoning uh, Ukraine to the tender mercies of Putin because they have holding up this, this aid package, this critically needed aid package for going on, you know, four or five months now. Well, actually, so, I want to ask you about that. His comments, as you say, come as more than $60 billion in U.S. aid to Ukraine is still in limbo in Congress. So how vital is that aid and is Ukraine doomed to fail without it? Well, it's absolutely vital. I mean, if we've seen just in recent weeks, the Russian forces have made advances on a number of axes um, in the east. And that's because basically the Ukrainian forces are having to ration uh, artillery. And, and, you know, the Russians can, can fire five to, to one artillery cells versus the Ukrainian forces. So it's having a direct impact. And if, if it persists um, for many more months, then yes, Ukraine could lose this war, absolutely. And, and that is why this aid package has been so critical. There is, a, there is a, you know, a plurality in the Senate who have approved it, and there's a plurality in the House if the Speaker will put it to a vote. But he has shown he will not for the last four or five months, and, and much is riding on his decision right now, including possibly Ukraine. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk now about another critical struggle, and that's Israel's war against Hamas. Gaza's health ministry says the number of people killed in the blockaded territory since October 7th has now surpassed 30,000 Palestinians. More than two-thirds of those are women and children. On the other side, more than 1,200 Israelis uh, have been killed since October 7th, most of them on the day when Hamas brutally attacked communities in the south of Israel. About half Half of the approximately 250 Israeli hostages taken by Hamas remain captive. Israel says some of them have died. The families of hostages held in Gaza and their supporters are launching a four-day march from southern Israel to Jerusalem, demanding that their loved ones be set free. The march comes as the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar are working on a framework deal under which Hamas would free some of the dozens of the remaining hostages it holds in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners and a six-week halt to the fighting. Ronan Nutra is one of those marching. He's the father of dual American-Israeli citizen Omer, a 22-year-old soldier who has been held since October 7th. No one can be left behind, the living and the murdered. The War Cabinet is responsible for ensuring that the current deal, all the hostages, will be included. We cannot agree to leave any sector behind. The state of Israel cannot be fully restored without securing the release of all the hostages. 
the living and the murdered. Emily, for several weeks on this program, we've spoken about internal pressure on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from the families of hostages. They've protested in the streets. They've spoken in the Knesset. What impact will this march have, if any, on the prime minister and the war cabinet? You know, a study came out, a survey came out earlier this month that said that um, Israelis were asked, would you rather um, have Hamas out of Gaza, have the hostages hostages returned, or can you not answer? And the the largest of those three was to Hamas destroyed, 40%. So, so for many Israelis, um, sadly, the return of the hostages is not a priority. Now, that said, a group of people marching to your place of work to tell you that they are unhappy with how you're doing your job um, is pressure. And, and we should also say that across those answers, many Israelis are not happy with Netanyahu, with the government, um, and want him out after the war, which one could suggest gives Netanyahu an incentive to continue the war that he not need to step down and face consequences for his actions up to this point. Hmm. Well, as we mentioned earlier, negotiations are underway in Qatar this week to bring about some sort of cessation of hostilities. Also this week, the Palestinian Authority's Prime Minister Mohammed Shtuya and his government submitted their resignations. Greg, the Palestinian Authority now administers parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank, and the U.S. and other nations would like to see a reformed Palestinian Authority governing post-war Gaza as well. Could this resignation be the first step in a process to overhaul the Palestinian Authority as part of a post-war vision for a two-state solution? That is what the Biden administration hopes, and they have dangled the prospect of uh, expanded financial aid for the PA, and this is meant to be part of their uh, broader plan that would include a Saudi-Israeli normalization deal and then some sort of serious push uh, to negotiate a two-state solution. Now, if you've been following the region for a while, you might have felt a sense of deja vu this week because something very similar happened in 2003 when the Bush administration was promoting its roadmap for peace. Uh, They felt Yasser Arafat had become uh, too corrupt and too difficult to deal with. They pushed him to name a technocratic prime minister. And that prime minister was none other than Mahmoud Abbas, who, of course, went on to become president and is now in the 19th year of his four-year term. So history has a way of repeating itself. The frontrunner right now to replace Mohammed Shteya as prime minister Uh, seems to be Mohammed Mustafa, who is a well-regarded economist, heads the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Palestine. He's thought of as someone who could clean up the PA, but he would have to do that without any resources. The PA is more or less broke at this point. Uh, Without any change in the president, this corrupt autocratic president who's been in power for almost 20 years, and also without any prospect of ending the Israeli occupation in the foreseeable future, which is a, a central reason why so many Palestinians see the PA as illegitimate, as, as being a subcontractor for Israeli occupation. So it's, it's a very hopeful idea that a new prime minister can change things. But I think in reality, uh, it's not likely to mean that much. Well, Greg, you're there in the region. You make the point that Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has been in power for so long. The man is in his 80s. He's clung on to power. Um, they, the PA is deeply unpopular among the people, as you've indicated. Does the resignation that we've just seen address that lack of legitimacy? No, it doesn't, because the prime minister doesn't really have much power unless the president allows him to have power. Uh, Both Shteya, the outgoing prime minister, 
and Rami Hamdallah, who was his predecessor, uh, they're, they're essentially yes-men. Hamdallah was an academic, Shteya has been an apparatchik in the PA for many, many years. And they were put there not to do much, not to be that influential. The one sort of reform-minded prime minister that Palestinians have had in the past two decades, Salem Fayyad, uh, clashed all the time with Mahmoud Abbas because they just did not agree on things. And Abbas didn't want to go along with with many of the forums, reforms that Fayyad was pushing. So as long as this president is still in power and as long as the PA is sort of drifting along as this visionless entity that doesn't really have a reason for being anymore, uh, I don't think uh, changing the identity of the prime minister is going to fix this crisis of legitimacy. Hmm. Well, more than 100 people were killed and about 700 wounded after Israeli forces fired at people in Gaza who were waiting for food aid from trucks. Israeli officials say the troops thought the people rushing towards the aid trucks, quote, posed a threat. But witnesses said Israeli troops fired on the people as they were pulling flour and canned goods off the trucks. The incident on Thursday has received widespread international condemnation. The White House has called for an investigation. James, could this latest tragedy complicate progress on the ceasefire talks or even end them? Uh, well, from my reporting in the Middle East, I, I, my my assumption is anything could could you know make things harder in terms of reaching a, a ceasefire deal. But I actually think that it's just another reminder that this humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza is not sustainable. Uh, you know, you saw those great, those horrible videos of the people swarming the trucks and then the apparently uh, the Israeli forces opening fire, although there is still being investigated. But I admit, there, this cannot go on indefinitely. And I think that this is another sign and another impetus to reach a ceasefire deal that, that gives a breathing room to all sides. I mean, it's going to have to have hostages returned from the Hamas side, but it's going to have to be a, a, a ceasefire. They're looking at six weeks at least as a ceasefire. And I just think this pushes that closer and closer to a reality that everyone has to recognize, which is this is not sustainable. Israel is increasingly isolated. Its one benefactor is the Biden administration, which is, as you said in your domestic hour, facing huge blowback in important swing states like Michigan and Arab populations and Muslim populations there. This is just not sustainable. And I think that this, this latest horror show is one more indicator that something has to be done and reach a ceasefire deal on this. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and this is 1A. This week, several countries airdropped about 45 tons of food and medical aid supplies into the besieged Gaza Strip. The donors were Egypt, Jordan, the UAE, Qatar, and France. This comes as the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, known as UNRWA, warned of an immediate imminent famine in Gaza. The last time they were able to deliver food aid was on January 23rd. The agency has since faced a cutoff of aid from the U.S. and other Western donors. Greg, what are the complications of getting aid into Gaza by land? The biggest complication is one that's been a complication for months now since the the beginning of the war, which is that there are only two crossing points by which aid can go into Gaza and those crossing points have limited capacity. Anything that goes in has to go through a very onerous Israeli inspection. And so that just limits uh, how much can, can cross the border each day. And then on top of that, you have a couple of things that have become issues in recent weeks. 
Uh, one is that there are thought to be about 200,000 people still in northern Gaza. Of course, most of the population has fled to the south, but still about 10% of Gazans are in the north. They are north of a, a line, a defensive line that Israel has used to bisect the Gaza Strip. Any aid that comes in through the crossing points in the south has to drive through that defensive line, be inspected again, uh, and get to the north, which just adds complications. And then you also have the breakdown in civil order in Gaza, the fact that uh, Hamas, which used to police the territory, can no longer do that in many parts of Gaza. And Israel doesn't have enough troops in the territory, even if it wanted to, to, to sort of handle the policing function. And so more and more you have cases of aid trucks coming in, being swarmed by hundreds or thousands of hungry people. Uh, that's what happened with this incident yesterday mm-hmm. where, where so many people were killed, is you have hungry, desperate people and no one to provide order in Gaza. And so when trucks come in, uh, they are immediately beset by by desperate people. So this breakdown in security in Gaza uh, has made it very difficult for aid agencies or private companies to to bring any supplies into the territory. Well, in an effort to address that, this week USAID announced $53 million in assistance for Gaza. Emily, as we noted, the U.S. has suspended aid to the U.N. agency UNRWA, but is now giving assistance to Gaza directly through USAID. Just very quickly, what's the significance of this? I mean, it shows that the U.S. is sort of siding with Israel on um, criticisms of of, you know, Hamas influence in UNRWA and sort of going the USAID route instead. But the the overall significance is that by all accounts, there is not enough aid making its way into, into Gaza and that the U.S. has played its part in that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, on Monday, President Biden said he hoped a ceasefire is close between Israel and Hamas that would pause hostilities and allow for the remaining hostages to be released. Well, I hope by the, the beginning of the weekend. I mean, the end of the weekend. At least my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. James, Israel and Hamas both have delegations in Qatar this week, hammering out details of a potential 40-day truce in the run-up to the holy month of Ramadan, which starts on March 10th. Both sides say there's still a big gulf. Just how big is that gulf? You know, these... these these talks are secret and they're, and they're always a big gulf until, until there's not and there's a deal. Um, so we don't really know. But what we do know is that there's, um, you know, there is growing pressure on all sides that something has to change the dynamic that we're in right now. And the, the Biden administration, when President Biden said that he was hopeful that something could be reached by next Monday, which he's backtracked on, clearly there was some uh, movement in the talks that gave him that hope. And he is still saying that um, they expect that it could be a deal before Ramadan, which is only a couple of weeks away. So I actually think that, that there, is, there are more signs pointing towards moving towards a ceasefire than not. But again, it's always, you know, darkest right before the dark in the Middle East, so you never know for sure. But again, to my point, uh, I just don't think the current dynamic is sustainable for for any of the sides. And uh, so, as President Biden said, hope springs eternal. 
Last Sunday, active duty U.S. airman Aaron Bushnell, a cyber defense operations specialist, died after setting himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. as a protest against the war in Gaza. Before he set himself alight, he said he would, quote, no longer be complicit in genocide, shouting free Palestine over and over in the moments after he was engulfed in flames. James, the Defense Department and the White House have largely stayed quiet on Bushnell. What has been the reaction to his active protest? And what can you tell us about the history of protests by men and women in U.S. military uniforms? Well, they're staying quiet because everyone, I think, is quite shocked by this. We haven't seen this before. I mean, I've been covering the military for over 30 years, and and I've never seen anything like this before. I did some research uh, before the show, and I, I don't think that there's been another case where an active-duty military member set him, him or herself on fire as a, as a form of political protest. There were a couple of cases uh, in 2016 and 2018 where veterans of the military did so uh, out of grievances with the Department of, of Veterans Affairs, but this, to my knowledge, is the first time an active-duty troop has actually done this. And uh, it's shocking. I mean, the, the military has rules against political protests in general, which is, you know, you, you are not supposed to do anything that can be perceived as partisan when you're wearing your uniform. And so this, is, this goes totally against the grain of the U.S. military's ethos, which I think is why everyone is so shocked by it. Uh, it's just been, uh, I mean, I, I was shaking my head. I never heard anything quite like it. <laughs> so let's get to those political ties between the U.S. and El Salvador. El Salvador's President Nayib Bukele had a cryptic message for American conservatives when he stopped by a major conference just outside Washington this week. Fight for your freedoms. Fight for your rights. The next president of the United States must not only win an election, he must have the vision, the will, and the courage to do whatever it takes. And above all, he must be able to identify the underlying forces that will conspire him, that will conspire against him. That's El Salvador's President Nayib Bukele at the annual summit of the Conservative Political Action Committee, better known as CPAC. He warned of, quote, dark forces that are allegedly taking over the United States. James, Bukele is a controversial figure globally, but he's incredibly popular at home where he's cracked down on violent crime and gangs. His iron-fisted tactics have horrified human rights observers. But actually, Salvadoran migration to the U.S. has dropped since his crackdown, suggesting that his countrymen embrace his law and order approach. So what cause was he encouraging American conservatives to fight for in his speech? The, the, the populist fight against the quote-unquote global elites. Uh, you know, this is part of this bonfire of the populace that we've seen around the world um, and it's increasingly uh, defining our own politics here at home. So it's a piece of, you know, this Bukele calls himself the world's coolest dictator. Um, that sounds very much like uh, former President Trump's comment that he'd only be a dictator in the first day of his, uh, the future presidency if he, if he gets to the White House again. And it gets to this, this, you know, this populist uprising against, you know, i.e. global elites, the deep state. We've heard it, you know, ad infinitum before. Uh, but it's a it's a very dangerous uh, it's a very dangerous movement um, because it is it is counter democracy and and there and increasingly people like Mr. Bukele and and to a certain extent President Trump are very out front about that in their comments and uh, you know it gets it's a piece of Tucker Carlson going over to 
Hungary and, and lavishing praise on Viktor Orban, the authoritarian leader of Hungary, or interviewing President Putin and lavishing praise on him, uh, or the House basically cutting off Ukraine as it fights against Russia. There is this, this sort of uh, populism from the right uh, that has become a global movement, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's upsetting a lot of democracies. An embrace of right-wing authoritarianism. Well, Argentine President Javier Millet, who's a self-professed admirer of former President Donald Trump, is also at the CPAC conference. He's slated to speak on Saturday. Meanwhile, back in Buenos Aires, many in Argentina are taking to the streets to protest his recent funding cuts to soup kitchens. That's while inflation climbs and the country's poor are at risk of a hunger crisis. Emily, what is behind his funding cuts? I mean, Argentina was in bad economic shape, and the funding cuts have have won approval from the International Monetary Fund. Um, but as you say, you know, aid for food is being cut at the same time that inflation is rising and transit tickets are going up and people don't have enough to eat. Um, he also made cuts to the anti-discrimination office. And it's the sort of thing where protest begets protest, right? So we've had reports of protests. Then this week, hundreds of flights were canceled because the air travel workers went on a 24-hour strike because they need better pay. So um, while, you know, <laughs> while he's speaking at CPAC, and actually someone should probably make a show of all these far-right figures or right-wing figures around the world, like gathering in, in Washington. You could have Liv's Trust. You could have Bukele. Um, anyway, while that's happening, you know, there's real anger at, at economic conditions and the political response to them. Uh, angry clouds gathering in uh, in Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. Some Republicans are up in arms this week after several House members took a trip to Cuba, which has faced economic sanctions from the U.S. for decades. Two House Democrats, Pramila Jayapal of Washington State and Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, are facing criticism for meeting with Cuban officials during their trip. They were in a group of a dozen members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus to travel to that country. Also this week, former U.S. diplomat Victor Manuel Rocha pleaded guilty to spying for Cuba for more than 20 years. Three, two, one. Also this week, former U.S. diplomat Victor Manuel Rocha pleaded guilty to spying for Cuba for more than 40 years. The 73-year-old will be sentenced in April. He admitted his actions to an undercover FBI agent in 2022. And now to Ghana and West Africa, where the parliament passed a bill making it illegal to identify as LGBTQ+. Anyone convicted of identifying that way could be imprisoned for up to three years. And forming or funding an LGBTQ plus group now has a maximum five-year prison sentence. Ghana's president has not yet signed the bill into law. Greg, what are the chances that this bill will be signed into law? Well, it is a draconian bill, to say the least. Gay sex was already illegal in Ghana prior to this. But as you say, this goes much further in in criminalizing identity, not even just action, but identity. The president has said that he will sign it into law if a majority of people in Ghana support it. He wasn't really clear on, on what would constitute majority support or how he would know that there's majority support. And obviously, there's been a lot of pressure uh, from both within Ghana and from around the world urging him not to sign it into law. Uh, Not the only country in Africa in recent years that has passed this sort of legislation. Uganda last year uh, passed the law that 
criminalizes uh, gay sex up to and including the death penalty as a possible punishment for certain homosexual acts. Uh, you look at polls in sub-Saharan Africa, and, and it, they do find consistently that homophobia is widespread on the continent. Some of that uh, stems out of religious belief. It's a, it's a very religious part of the world. Some of that comes from opportunistic politicians who have sought to portray homosexuality as a Western import, as, as something that has been imposed on their countries by uh, former colonial powers. And, and some of it actually stems out of America's own culture war. You've had uh, conservative groups pushing uh, homophobic ideology in, in some countries in Africa. And so all of this has combined to make for a very hostile climate. Hmm. And so quickly, Greg, what would this mean for LGBTQ plus individuals who live in Ghana? I mean, it, it means a, a climate of fear. Uh, it means that, as you said, even identifying as such could mean years in prison. So you've had uh, groups in Ghana who have said this is going to have incredibly dire consequences for them. It's going to mean people who are perhaps already in the closet, people who are perhaps already uh, afraid to to identify because there is a ban on on gay sex and there is a stigma against it uh, are going to to be even more afraid now. And finally, to France on Wednesday, the French Senate voted to enshrine abortion rights in the country's constitution. The language describes abortion as quote a guaranteed freedom. The bill still needs approval from both houses and the French Parliament. Here's what the French Justice Minister had to say about the bill. Que les choses soient très claires, le gouvernement n'entend pas créer un droit absolu. Let things be very clear. The government doesn't intend to create an absolute, unlimited, enforceable right. The aim today is to protect women's freedom, not extend it. So, Emily, how likely is it that this bill will pass? Um, well, the passage of the Senate was sort of hailed as, the, as a major victory for the bill because the Senate was seen as the harder of the two houses to get. So, you know... A, of course, anything could happen, but I think it's looking as though it will. I, I just want to quickly note that in the plain text introduction of this bill, um, the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was cited explicitly. And this was, you know, it's, it's interesting that this is happening the same week as we sort of see politicians here in the United States say, well, of course, we, we won't attack the right to have IVF, but, you know, we should we really enshrine it in legislation? This was the French saying, we have seen what's happening elsewhere in the world. We know what could come on our own political, you know, what could be coming over our own political horizon. We are going to take legislative steps to protect the right to an abortion in this country. So how would it change reproductive health care in France overall, Emily? I mean, the French overwhelmingly support abortion rights, and abortion is legal for any reason through 14 weeks. Um, there are going to be those who say, see, we want to put in a similar ban. It's very different than the American context. Um, and I think, I think essentially the impetus for this was changing was both the fact that abortion rights are under attack in the United States and elsewhere in Europe um, and that the reality that Marine Le Pen could be elected into office. And so this bill makes abortion a guaranteed freedom mm -hmm. in French law. And sends a message back to um, France's allies on the other side of the Atlantic as well here in Washington. All right, Emily and James, lightning round. Quick, quick thoughts from each of you. Emily first. Um, I'm going to be incredibly gauche because it was what popped into head and promote the podcast you mentioned at the top. It's called, it's new. It's called the election tricycle. Uh, this year we have elections in the U.S., U.K., and India. So my co-hosts co and I 
um, unpack electoral developments in those countries. So not only in those countries, it's a big year for elections every week. Great. We'll take a listen. James Kitfield, what are you listening to, thinking about? On that theme, I think this presidential election uh, in America this year is going to be unprecedented. And it starts with the fact that one of the two major candidates denies ever uh, elections that he's ever lost. And 60% of the Republican Party believe him. That is a setup for some very volatile situations as this election proceeds. All right. Well, that's James Kitfield. He's a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress and author of the book In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Also with us today, Greg Karlstrom, Middle East correspondent at The Economist and author of How Long Will Israel Survive? The Threat from Within. And Emily Tampkin, reporter, author of the book Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities and co-host of the Election Tricycle podcast. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help from Kellen Quigley and Kennedy Wright. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the LifeKit podcast from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.